You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody and welcome today. If uh, last Sunday was your first time with us on Easter and you're back today, we especially want to welcome you. And if it's your first time today, as always, we hope it's not your last. We're starting something brand new today in on the heels of and light of Easter. As you can see, it's called Not Alone. We're just looking at that truth, that because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because of the resurrection, because of the people he's given us, that we are not alone. And so I want to get into that idea and subject by talking to you today today by means of the world's longest introduction. It's called building tension, all right, because you're going to want to, is he going somewhere? And the answer is yes, all right, so trust, have trust. Uh, something that's happening to us, I want to talk about that. Something that's sort of coming upon us, it, this thing is by no means a bad thing. It can be a good thing, but it is a thing that is happening to all of us right now in one way or the other. This thing that we are experiencing is something that we see as, as things are opening back up culturally, as people are going back out societally. This is something that we just experienced right here last weekend in a huge way on Easter Sunday. It's something I think we're experiencing as COVID numbers hopefully, thankfully, remain low. And that thing that we are experiencing in one way or the other, it's called the return <laughs> The return, the reality of returning, things are returning in some ways to how they were before in the sense of being open or how they were scheduled. And that's good, but that's just the structural side of the return. But what about the human side of the return? What about the people side? How are we doing as people, as parents, leaders, teachers, students, as we return? How are we returning? I don't know if you remember this little scene from uh, the, Lord, uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King where Faramir, uh, he is the brave but unloved son of this old sort of evil, wicked king named Dinathor. Faramir is given basically this hopeless task of a suicide mission, try to push back an overwhelming, impossible number of enemies. And before he goes on this suicide mission, he looks at his broken, embittered old father and he says to him, if I should return Think the better of me, Father. His father says back to him, he says, well, that will depend upon the manner of your return. Now, Denethor is a terrible father. God is nothing like Denethor. I am not saying parent or be like Denethor in any way, and yet I think he's saying something that's true right here, that what happens to us in the fight, in the battle, affects how we return. Because sometimes when we return from a fight, from a battle, even from tragedy, we're not always the same. Sometimes we're better when we return. Sometimes we're worse. So what will be then the manner of our return? Return to relationships, return to church, return to people, to work in this next season. What will be the manner of our return? There was a, a great article recently in The Atlantic, maybe you saw it, earlier this month, and I love the title of it, it's called this, Why People Are Acting So Weird. <laughs> and the article looks specifically at this idea at how Americans are returning culturally and relationally, and what the article has to say is like, actually, it's not going so well. It's a little longer of a, a quote here, but hang with me. The article goes like this. 
everyone is acting so weird. The most obvious recent weirdness was when Will Smith smacked Chris Rock at the Oscars. But if you look closely, people have been behaving badly on smaller stages for months now. Last week, a man was arrested after he punched a gate agent at the Atlanta airport. The gate agent looked like he was about to punch back until his female colleague, bless her soul, stood on some chairs and said no to the entire situation. That wasn't even the only viral jerk on a plane video that week. In February, people found some ways to throw tantrums while skiing. Skiing! In one viral video, a man slid around the chairlift boarding area of a Canadian resort, one foot strapped into his snowboard as he flailed at security guards and refused to comply with the mask mandate. Separate footage shows a maskless man on a ski shuttle screaming, there's nobody wearing masks on any bus in this blankety-blank town, before calling his fellow passenger a liberal piece of stuff and storming off. Now, that is neither to confirm, nor deny, nor endorse, or repudiate a mask mandate at all. I'm simply pointing out, people are not acting so great. All right. During the pandemic, disorderly, rude, and unhinged conduct seem to have caught on as much as bread baking and Bridgerton. Bad behavior of all kinds, everything from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence has increased, as a journalist, Matt Iglesias, pointed out in a Substack essay earlier this year. Americans are driving more recklessly, crashing their cars, and killing pedestrians at higher rates. Early 2021 saw the highest number of unruly passenger incidents ever, according to the FAA. In February, a plane bound for Washington, D.C. had to make an emergency landing in Kansas City, Missouri, after a man tried to break into the cockpit. Healthcare workers say their patients are behaving more violently. At one point, Missouri hospitals plan to outfit nurses with panic buttons. Schools, too, are reporting an uptick in disruptive behavior. Choppy reported last fall. In 2020, the U.S. murder rate rose by nearly a third, the biggest increase on record then rose again in 2021. Car theft spiked 14% last year. Carjackings have surged in various cities. And if there were a national tracker of school board meeting hissy fits, it would be heaving with data points right now. Basically, this is just trying to point out that as we return, we are not doing so well. How are you? Maybe, maybe not. You're doing, I hope you are. But how will we as people who have lived through, been through what is arguably the most discouraging and terrifying cultural moment of most of our lifetimes, what will we be like once we have returned? Here's my question. How can we return well? How can we do that well? How can we return well? And to answer that question, I want to look right now at my favorite book in the Bible. It's the book of Ruth. Because Ruth chapter one, which we're going to look at here in just a moment, Ruth chapter one is all about that. Ruth chapter one is all about the return from tragedy. You may know the story in the book all about how a Jewish man, his name was Elimelech. Uh, Elimelech was from the little town of Bethlehem. Uh, he in his day lived through a national crisis. It wasn't a, a virus, it was a, it was a famine. And in the middle of his famine, he moved his family, when times got tough, to the pagan neighboring nation of Moab. Now Bible commentators basically say this was a crisis of faith which Elimelech failed. It was a crisis of faith which Elimelech failed. Why? Well, you'll remember that for Israel, famine in specific was a consequence of covenant unfaithfulness. 
Israel had sworn to follow, obey the one true God. They had a special covenant with him. And one of the consequences that God had promised to bring on Israel if they forsook him was famine in order to bring them back and help them keep their word they had already promised to keep. And that was famine. That was a potential consequence. You'll also remember that the story of Ruth takes place against the backdrop of the book of, the period of, the time of, the judges. A point in Jewish history in which there was no king and therefore pretty much like the Atlantic article we just read, everybody in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. That's what the book says. Apparently Israelites were assaulting airline gate agents and screaming at parent Torah meetings. Instead though, of repenting and considering his ways, remaining faithful in the land God had given specifically to him and his family, Elimelech abandoned his land, abandoned his faith, moves his wife, Naomi, to Moab. Elimelech raises his two sons there. He gives them these pagan foreign names. They grow up, they marry two Moabite women. One of them's name was Ruth. But marrying Moabite women was something expressly forbidden by the law of God, not for ethnic reasons, but for faith reasons. But then it gets worse, because while they're there first, Elimelech dies, then the two sons die, leaving all three women, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, hopeless and penniless. But then Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 says this, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And it's right here in Ruth 1.6 that the first of 10 times that the idea of return, of the homeward Odyssean journey, takes place in Ruth. 10 times the verb sub, the Hebrew ver- verb for return, is used over the next 16 verses. 10 times in 16 verses, one word is used. I wonder if the author of the book of Ruth is trying to tell us something about what it means, about what it looks like for people to return from tragedy. Hmm. Let's look at it. Ruth chapter one, verse six. Naomi prepared to sue, to return. Verse eight, she urges her daughters-in-law to return to their mother's homes in Moab. In verse 10, Ruth and Orpah refuse, saying they will in fact remain with Naomi and return with her to Israel. In verses 11 and 12, Naomi again urges them to return to Moab two more times. But then when Orpah hears Naomi's reasons to go back, Orpah does in fact sue return to Moab. Naomi points out to Ruth saying, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and her gods. But then Ruth says, uh, I'm staying even if Orpah goes. She says in verse 16, no, 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 Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to return from you. And then Naomi, when she staggers back into Bethlehem after 10 years gone, she says in a play on words that the Lord has brought me back. He has returned me empty. Naomi's saying, I'm kind of like one of those soda bottles you take back to wherever you bought it from once it's been consumed. Once what's inside is gone. She's saying, I was full. God returned me to where I came from, empty. The message translation puts that verse like this. It says, Naomi says, God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Oh, but let's ask, is what she said actually true? Is Naomi really empty, totally forsaken, have nothing as she returns from tragedy? Hmm. Let me ask you the same question. 
How would you say that you are returning? How's your family returning? How's your heart? How's your mind? How's your emotions? Would you say that you're better or worse for the wear? And maybe as we've been reading this, to going through this, you've been thinking perhaps of people along the way that you, like Naomi, have lost over the last little bit. She lost the ones closest to her. Can you see her dream of a family had died? Decades of relationship gone just like that. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Should. Over the last two years, so many Americans have lost 10-year, 20-year relationships. And if this isn't true of you, I'm so glad, but it is likely true of someone sitting right next to you today. And by the way, the more diverse politically and ethnically your relationships have been, the far more likely it was you would have lost someone. The point is, these losses are painful. You just don't create 10 years, 20 years of relationship overnight. How are you really returning? How did Naomi really return? Look with me for a moment. This is so brilliant. With the last use of Sub in chapter one, we're told, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied, oh, by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. She was so far from returning empty, and so are we. So with all this in mind, once more with the world's largest, longest introduction in mind, let me try, it's called building tension, by the way, in theory. I'll let you be the judge of that, of course. But let me now, in light of Naomi's return, let me try to give you three ways I think we can return well as people. How can we return well? Three things here. There's something to refuse. There's something to reach for. And something to reimagine. Refuse, reach, and reimagine. Let's go here, number one, and look at what it means to refuse something. What do I mean? I mean this. I want to encourage you today to refuse to believe the lie that Naomi believed. Naomi's lie, what was it? It was the lie that she was all alone. Because when she said, God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back, I want to tell you, that was fundamentally and factually untrue. Ruth was standing right next to her. The point is Naomi was so blinded by her pain, she could not see who and what was standing right next to her. Because when she says these words, again, she's literally standing next to, think about it, someone who has promised to be there with her and for her for a lifetime, even if death came along. See, Naomi may have felt alone, but she was not factually alone. Her feelings were not the facts. Again, let's not be so blinded by our pain, church, so focused on who and what we may have lost that we can't see perhaps who and what we've gained. So let me ask you today, who has maybe, who has stayed with you through everything? Maybe even despite a couple of squinty side eyes over the last couple of years. <laughs> who has maybe even joined you despite everything? I wanna tell you, your greatest friends are the ones who have stayed with you. They're your true friends. Again, let's not be so blinded by what we've lost. We can't see the gift of what we've gained. For me, I want to just share a quick metaphor, a helpful metaphor of navigating the last couple of years of both parenting and leadership. Maybe this is for you and your, your education spot or teaching or medical spot. Helpful metaphor has been the metaphor of an ancient sea captain who's sailing from one continent to the other. The captain, if you know the, the metaphor here, sets across the ocean on his journey, sort of just that away. 
that away, towards a new place and land he's never seen. And when the storms came up for those captains, when maybe even the virus began to run its course on their ships, when they got a little off course by the winds, what was the captain's job? Well, fundamentally and basically, the captain's job was to keep as many people as possible alive. Sort of a, a leadership by attrition job. Now, it was possible, of course, that lives could be gained on the way by babies birthed on board. But for the most part, all those captains arrived with fewer people than they set out with. Now, would we say they were inherently bad leaders, uh, uh, captains, because they got to the other side and there were fewer people with them? We don't say that. And neither would they, because they knew sea voyages were inherently risky and dangerous. They knew they couldn't be so broken along the way by who they had lost along the way that they neglected to be grateful for who made it. So I want to tell you the same thing. You're not a bad friend. Or bad leader in your job, bad teacher or parent because you lost someone along the way. Sometimes death happens on long voyages across choppy waters. So let me encourage you today in light of that. Refuse Naomi's lie that all is lost, that you're all alone, that your best friends or family are gone. It's not true. Look around today. Let me encourage you. You are returning with your Ruths, your best people. And so as a lead pastor of Mosaic, I want to say in the same way today, in that same vein of thought, that you are our Ruths. You are our best people here. If you are here, if you have stayed, you are God's gift to this ministry and to our future. Refuse Naomi's lie. She wasn't alone as she returned, and neither are you. Number two, let me encourage you not just to refuse something, but to also reach for something. What is it we should reach for? Look at this. Put it, I'll phrase it like this. Naomi wasn't just returning with someone, she was returning to something. Not just returning with someone, returning to something. She was returning, the scripture says, as the barley harvest was beginning. But as there was a new harvest for her, it was just the beginning. If she could only see it of hope, of provision, and in the same way, I want to tell you, I believe there is a harvest for us, a harvest of hope, a harvest of lives, if we'll just see it and reach out for it right now. Because people around us, they are hungry for connection. They are hungry for hope. They are hungry to be a part of something. People all around us are hungry for spiritual things right now. Let me tell you a story. I got a bunch of these I could share. I've only got time for one, and I'll try to make a point within a point. Week before Easter, went to go get a haircut. Sat, did sit down in the chair. Lady taking care of me was a very kind woman, probably around 50 years old. She asked me why I was there in the middle of a day on a Monday. I told her I'm normally off on Mondays. She asked what I did for a living. And of course, as we all know, when people ask a pastor that, it's game on. It's game on. You never know what's going to come out of their mouths, and that's a fact. I told her, I'm a pastor of a Christian church. She said, oh, really? She asked, which one? I said, uh, Hill Country. <laughs> I'm, kidding, I'm kidding, of course. I said, I said Gateway. I'm kidding. No, I, said, I said, Mosaic Church. She said, that's, that's great. Can I ask you a question? I said, yes. She said, so, so. Christians believe that God knows everything about us, even what we're going to do. 
I thought about it for a half second, like, it's just a trap. You know, like, I'm not, do, do I really believe this? Where am I going? Okay, yes. Psalm 139. Yeah, you're familiar with all my ways, four words on my tongue. Yes, okay, great. Check, you know, I believe that. I said, yes. She said, okay, if that's true, then why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? That story's always bothered me. I don't like it. Now, I thought about it, and I said this. Well, I've got an answer in two parts. One has to do with Abraham. The other has to do with someone else I'll talk about in just a minute. Again, building tension as we go, right? <laughs> I said, before we get to any of this, let me ask you, where are you from? She says, I'm from Vietnam. All right, I said, are you, are you asked her, are you from a particular faith background? She said, I'm Buddhist. I said, all right. I said, well, actually, if you didn't know, Buddhists and Christians have a few things in common. She seemed surprised, and she asked, we do? Like what? I said, well, first of all, both Buddhism and Christianity, in their own way, seek to give an answer to the questions of evil and suffering in the world. The Buddha began his teaching, if you will, about how to get off the wheel of Dharma by addressing the questions of suffering. Jesus of Nazareth came into the world also addressing those questions. He spoke to human suffering. He cared for suffering people. He himself suffered tremendously. And second, I said, Buddhists and Christians care about deeply about the subject of peace. I said, you know this, but of course, through meditation and their scriptures, Buddhism talks a lot about how to find inner peace. She nods her head. I said, well, the Bible calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. And the core of his teaching was an ethic of nonviolence. Christians care about peace. She said, oh, I never thought about that. I said, but back to Abraham. <laughs> I said, so why, you're asking, why did God ask him to do what he did if, Abraham knew what he, if he knew what Abraham was gonna do? So I told her this. I said, I think it's not that God needed to know what Abraham would do. It's that Abraham needed to know what Abraham was going to do. She said, I don't understand. I said, all right, let's say you were the last one cutting hair here today. And after everyone left today and they all went home, your manager accidentally left a bag full of $10,000 in cash on the counter and all the security cameras were disabled and no one would ever know who took the money. Does God know what you're gonna do? Yes, but do you know what you're gonna do? Well, you won't know until you've been given a choice. Let's say you've said you want to be a person of honesty and integrity. That's what you've said you want to be. But how do you know who you really are? You only know who you really are when you're given the choice to be what you've said you wanted to be or not, and you actually do it. Now, because you've done this, you know who you really are and making value-based principle decisions in the face of opposition and risk is how we grow as people and that's how Abraham grew as a person. And by the way, for all of us here today, I'll ask you the same thing. Who are you? Who are we? Maybe you've said you want to be a good and faithful follower of Jesus, huh? You want to be a person who doesn't run from adversity, who can stand up in the middle of a battle, who doesn't lose their nerve or courage or lose their grip. You love Jesus, the church, your spiritual family, no matter what. But how do you know that's who you really are? It's only when you've been given the choice not to be that but then you actually do that and you stay in the fight. But ultimately, I said to her, this story is really about someone else. Because when Jesus came into the world, he said all those stories in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, were really all about him. He said, he's like the missing puzzle piece to all those stories. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, think about it. Isaac, the son of Abraham, he didn't really give his life, but Jesus, the son of God, did. Uh, Jesus was the son of the heavenly father who came to earth and gave his life for us. I said in the story, you remember, said Isaac carried wood 
on his back up the mountain. Jesus also carried wood up a mountain. He carried a wooden cross, but he actually suffered and actually died so that we could know God. That story about Abraham was really about Jesus. She paused and said, I like your answer very much. (laughs) Our time now is through. The next customer is here. Time to get up. (laughs) But please come back. Next time, I want to ask you about the Passover story. I don't like that one either. (laughs) I said, okay, I'll come back. She shook my hand and said, see you next time. Listen, my point is our staff, community groups here, maybe you, we've got stories like this almost every day. My point is there's a harvest for you and me that's just beginning. If we'll reach for, so reach out to your neighbors, ask them how they're doing, invite them for dinner or invite them here to Sundays or to your community group. I said, aren't you glad somebody once upon a time Invited you, yeah. Wait, don't answer that, I'm kidding. No. Even if it was only Google inviting you, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. As we return, our harvest is just beginning. How can we return? Well, number one, refuse the lie. Reach for the harvest. And finally, I want to encourage you to reimagine something. Something in particular. I'd like us just for a few moments here, in light of what we've heard in Ruth chapter one, to reimagine what loss truly means in our lives. Because Americans, you know this, I know this, you feel this, I feel this. As Americans, we like our comforts, we like our privileges, I like my comforts and privileges, and most of all, we as Americans, maybe even I like to, most of all, I like to win, not lose. But what if a loss wasn't a loss? What if our losses, if we've had them over the last two years, weren't just losses, what if they could in the kingdom of God, be something else. What do I mean? Well, let's look at not just Naomi's return, but more specifically, Ruth's return. What is Ruth being returned to? We can see how Naomi is returning. Naomi used to live in Bethlehem. Naomi used to worship in Bethlehem, had a life in Bethlehem. Naomi is returning to Bethlehem, where she's from. But how can Ruth return? Ruth's not from Bethlehem. She's never been there. She's never seen it. And yet she said back in verse 10, she's going to return to Bethlehem. How can Ruth return to a place she's never been? How can a person return to a place they've never been? The clue lies in verses 16 and 17. Ruth said this, Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. There I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. They're beautiful words. They're covenant words. What's she saying? Well, Ruth here is not only professing loyalty to Naomi, she is confessing her newfound faith in the one true God. Right here, she takes upon her lips the the love name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right here. She is abandoning her idols and her former way of life. So what's she returning to? Hear me. Not to a place, but to her creator, to her maker, to her designer, not to a destination, no, no, but to her design, to life as she was meant to live it, not marked by idolatry and paganism. Ruth is returning home, oh, but not to Bethlehem. Ruth is returning to the heart of God, returning to the maker and the lover of her soul. But think about it, where did her return actually begin? Her return began 
with a loss, with a loss. It began with the loss of her husband. When death and loss tragedy made their way into her life, it opened her up to a new journey. And in this way, can you see, she was delivered through her tragedy. Yes, she lost her husband. Oh, but through the loss, she gained God. It was only when she lost a relationship that she cared for, cared about, that she lost her idols as well. So I want to tell you all this today. If we lose our lives, church, but we gain God, we have gained what we need. If we lose loved ones, but we gain God, we have gained what we need. If our personal dreams crumble, but we gain God, we have gained what we need. If our kingdoms go, oh, but his kingdom comes, we have gained what we need. Because sometimes, many times, I want to tell you, that loss in your life, it exposes a place. It opens up a space that only God can fill. Ruth was being returned by God, turned away from idols to her true home in the heart of God. And to be a Christian, therefore, I want to tell you, to be someone who follows God is to be someone who has been returned, turned away from idols, turned away from living a small story, chasing only temporary comforts in a dot in human history. Oh, but instead being returned to being a part of God's great story in the world. And by the way, of course, this was true of Ruth, because even though she couldn't see it now in chapter one, but if you read to the end of the book, you find she married again. She becomes the great grandmother of King David, Israel's greatest king, and eventually becomes part of the line of Jesus of Nazareth. Ruth was swept up into a story bigger than her own, and it began when she experienced an unexpected loss, not a gain. The loss of her husband set her on a path to knowing God more deeply, truly, richly. And in in this way, the death of a man set her free. And I want to tell you the same thing is true today, except in an infinitely better way, that the death of another man can set you free. Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth, though he had done nothing wrong and did not deserve it, lost his life for your sake. Famine didn't get him. It was us who did. Humanity did. And yet when you look at him today, and Jesus today, who came for you and lived for you and died for you and realized he lost his life for you, you can be returned. Turned away from despair today, from the lie that you are alone. Because I want to tell you, he didn't just die to set you free. He was raised back to life. And now he sends his spirit in our hearts when we trust him. Can you see? We are delivered. We are returned to God through the loss of through the death of, and then by the resurrection of Jesus. Didn't the loss of Jesus become the greatest gain the world's ever known? It did. How can we return? Well, let me summarize, and I'll pray for you. We've got to refuse the lie that we're alone or not. Reach for the harvest of people and lives God's got for us and bringing us as a church. Finally, reconsider, reimagine what loss can do in our life. The kingdom of God, our losses ultimately can become gains. Hope you can say amen to this church. Let me take a moment and pray for us today. Lord, we come today in Jesus' name. And Lord, I'm praying for each person here who's struggling, wrestling, perhaps grappling with a loss of some kind, emotionally, energy, career, individual, loved one. 
pray that you'd meet him right now here in this moment. If you're here, church, you're on, online in the room and you'd say, man, today, I, while I know it might not be factually true, emotionally, it is true. I feel alone. Would you just raise your hand right now? I want to pray for you. Pray for you. Well, those feelings, and they, they feel real, real. They're true in that way. We feel alone. Lord, I'm praying today that that feeling, in a way a lie, would be overcome and overwhelmed by a greater truth. That Jesus, you're even greater than Ruth. You're the friend who sticks closer than a brother. That your nearness would be our good. Today, if you've been struggling with some kind of loss, any kind, would you just raise your hand right now where you are in your home, online, hotel, who knows where, I'll raise mine. Lord, we're struggling and grappling with these things. Lord, help us to remember many times losses come to set us free. That in you we gain what we couldn't have had otherwise. And most of all, we gain you. Thank you for being our greatest good. Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.